Good morning, Redemption Tempe. This Wednesday night is renewal night, and uh, man, these are nights that we have been scheduling every few months, a chance for us to gather together and seek Jesus for renewal in our lives, in our church, and in our city. And I want to invite you to come out. Man, we have been celebrating signs of renewal, things that God has been doing in our life recently, and that's included stories of healing, uh, stories of both physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing that's been really exciting. I want to uh, share with you one more story as we've kind of been sharing these stories, celebrating them recently. Um, this is uh, an email that came in recently regarding our last renewal night that took place. Uh, someone saying, I just really wanted to share this with you all as a way to say thank you uh, for praying with me a couple weeks ago regarding healing for my daughter. So the email said this. <clears throat> she said, my daughter has a malformation in her brainstem called a Chiari. Uh, she is under the care of a neurosurgeon and has an MRI every year of her brain and spine. Her most recent MRI in August was not good news. Her condition is getting worse. The neurosurgeon is now considering operating on her brainstem because the Chiari is causing hydrocephalus and fluid on her spine. Along with that bad news, the MRI also has an incidental finding of a mass in her hip bone. The radiologist determined it was either a bone tumor or a cyst. Her pediatrician speculated it to be a bone tumor and ordered an x-ray to determine whether it was benign or malignant. I was devastated to say the least. I received that. Oh, there's nothing worse when it's your child. I was devastated to say the least. I received that news just days before the renewal night redemption, and my women's Bible study group encouraged me to attend the renewal night. I didn't want to go since I couldn't stop crying every time I thought about the possibility of my daughter having cancer. I sobbed through the majority of the night, but I realized that my fear was really clouding my faith, and I felt renewed that night, and I began to pray boldly for my daughter. I went into her room every night after she fell asleep and prayed over her. I prayed that whatever was seen in her hip, benign or malignant, tumor or cyst, that it would just be gone, that the Lord would just remove it. I received the results from her x-ray on Friday. There was nothing there. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. No cyst, no tumor, nothing, string of exclamation points. Uh, whatever was seen on the MRI was gone. I was so relieved. I was in tears. Thank you so much for taking the time to pray with me and for uh, your faith and healing, which encouraged me to pray boldly for my daughter. Uh, man, it's exciting to see God doing these signs of renewal. And we know that uh, there's aspects of the kingdom that it's not yet, that we're still waiting for the resurrection to come. But there's also aspects where we love seeing the kingdom of God break into the now and seeking Jesus for his renewal in our lives, in our church, in our city. And so please come out this Wednesday. We want to continue uh, seeking Jesus together in that way. All right, well, <clears throat> I've been looking into the longest bridges in the world recently. And <laughs> just out of curiosity, you know, and, and there's some interesting uh, bridges. You see this picture here. Um, and one of the things that has struck me is, man, the longest bridge in the world, you might not know this, but it's actually over 102 miles long. It cost over $10 billion to build. It required uh, over 10,000, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, over 10,000 people building it over four years. And uh, some of these bridges are just amazing. This one is actually the longest bridge. This is in the United States. Um, it's the longest bridge that runs continuously over water in the world. When we think about the time and the money and the cost and all to build these bridges from one place to another, it's just really phenomenal. Well, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, uh, that this bridge connects two countries, 
Right? You've got one country on the one side and the other country on the other side. And on the one side is a, a country with a king and his kingdom where there is stability and there is peace. There's flourishing, there's life, there's abundance. And yet on the other side of this bridge is another country where uh, it has been ravaged by disaster. There's been earthquake and some of the buildings have crumbled. There are those who have uh, sought to exploit or take advantage of the situation and so there's exploitation all in the land. There is darkness and it's like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Well, the king of the one country, the good country, he decides, man, I, I he want to build a bridge. I want to build a bridge to cross over and, and, and to help and to bring resources, supplies, and help. And so this king begins to undertake this massive project. And this is where we get the $10 billion and the 100 plus miles long. And he uh, executes this amazing, massive project to build this bridge from this one country to the other. And the king is excited. He rallies his people. He says, hey, we're going to bring food for those who are hungry. We're going to bring water for those who are thirsty. We're going to bring medicine for those who are sick. We're going to bring ourselves to visit with those who are isolated. And the king leads the way on this bridge, this massive caravan behind him of all of his people, bringing all these resources and supplies. And they're heading across this bridge and uh, traveling this 100 miles or whatever. Only when they get to the other end of the bridge, they find a surprise. So there's a barricade. It's been barricaded and blocked off. And they're kind of scratching their heads going, what's going on? But as you kind of look around, what you find is that the people on this other country are seeking to build bridges of their own. And some of them are built with shoddy materials, and so they're kind of going out, but eventually they're crumbling. Others, like they do a fairly good job, you know, but they're able to build maybe like one mile out to the hundred, but eventually it just drops off into the ocean. Some people are, they've got ropes and vines, just kind of, I'm going to build my own bridge. I don't need all the other people in there, but I want to build my own. So I got my ropes, my vines, I'm going to try and make my way out, but they get like 10 feet or so, you know. And some people have just given up on the whole bridge building business. They're like, man, there's no way, no way across. It's too deep. And so they've just kind of acquiesced to the squalor of life around them and resigned themselves thinking this is all there is. And it raises the question, why would they not receive the bridge? Why would they not receive the king's bridge that had come to them? We are back in the Gospel of John this morning. How many of you enjoyed our countercultural conviction series we've been in recently? <laughs> Me too. It's been a lot of fun, and I've got good news for you. The Gospel of John is countercultural as well. <laughs> and we're going to see that today. We're in John 14. And so if you have your Bible, you want to turn there, uh, John chapter 14. And this is a chapter where Jesus makes this famous saying, the statement he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And this saying of Jesus is controversial today. This gets us into some controversial territory because it's what some might call like exclusivity, the exclusivity of Jesus, and raises the question, is Jesus the only way to God? And to say so today can sound kind of arrogant and condescending, it can sound like, uh, man, we Christians think we have it all figured out and no one else has anything figured out. Uh, it can sound like, man, we think we're God's whatever for, for mankind, you know, and, and it can make it sound like kind of proud or arrogant, especially in a culture that is often saying 
hey, uh, live your truth. Find your own way, like all ways are valid. It's arrogant to think the king has built this bridge to come get us. Just build your own bridges out into the ocean. There are plenty of different ways. Bridges to find transcendence, to find meaning, to find life, to find truth, to find God or the gods. We live in a cultural context that thinks uh, there are many bridges out to those things, and it's arrogant to suggest it's the one. But I want to take up the gauntlet this morning, and I want to try and make the case to you that what we find here in John 14 is actually the beauty of exclusivity. That it is beautiful and powerful because Jesus is not one more way that we go out into the universe to try and find God. Rather, Jesus is the unique and decisive way that God has come to find us. Let's pick up in John 13, actually. We're in John 14, but this conversation starts a little earlier. To put this in context, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And if you remember when we left off in John 13, uh, the, the context here is Jesus is the night before his death. So he's having the last supper with his disciples, uh, saying, hey, I'm about to go to the cross. One of you is going to betray me. That's Judas. And then in chapter 13, verse 36, this is where this conversation starts. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus is like, I'm going, going somewhere. And he's like, where are you going? And Jesus says, like, I'm going to the cross. And Peter's like, well, can I go with you? And Jesus says, not now, but you will later. And in uh, verse, well, you could ask them, why are you going to the cross? And in verse two, Jesus explains, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is going to prepare, he's going to the cross to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. We can live life together as the family of God. But in verse five, Thomas asks the obvious follow-up question. He said, well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And this is where Jesus' family says to him, well, Thomas is like, hey, Jesus, give us a map. Give us some GPS coordinates. Show us how to get there. And Jesus' family says to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. He says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in verse eight, Philip it raises the obvious next follow-up question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip's going, Jesus, just show us the way out to the Father. Show us the map. Show us the trail. Show us how to get out to find God the Father, and that'll be enough. And I love what Jesus says here. In verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This brings us to our first observation this morning, that Jesus is the way that God has come to find Jesus is the way to you. Jesus is not the way that we go out into the universe to find God. Jesus is the way that God has come to find us. Jesus doesn't say here, I'll show you the way. He says, I am the way. He doesn't give them a map and say, okay, here's the way to get out to the Father. He says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is the beauty of the Trinity that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so when you see Jesus, you see God who has come for you. Jesus is not a 
trail guide who shows you how to ascend the sacred mountain and get up to find God. Jesus is God come down the mountain to find you. And you might be saying, well, hey, I, I'm not trying to ascend any sacred mountain, right? So that doesn't apply to me. Uh, but there's another popular image that you may have seen before that is um, often used, and it's this image of a bridge, right? And so sometimes we see this popular image of the cross as a bridge. And in this, uh, this has often been used in evangelism conversations over the years. Maybe you've seen this. And um, in this popular illustration, you've got, you know, man or humanity's on the one side, God's on the other side, and it's like, we're trying to get over to God, but there's the Grand Canyon there, and we just can't cross. Like, no matter how far we jump, we just can't get there, and uh, there's death, kind of this chasm in the middle. And so the beauty of the gospel uh, in this image is that the cross provides this bridge that now, all right, Jesus made a way. Now we can go out, and we can get to the other side. We can go out, and we can get to God. There's only two problems with this uh, illustration. The first one is the architectural design for this bridge. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> my friend Scott Erickson, an artist, he, he made this back in the day for me, but it's like, like this image of like, man, does anyone have a ladder? <laughs> right? Like, it's not a very good architectural design for a bridge, not a very good method or a way. I, I researched a lot of bridges this week. None of them look like this, right? <laughs> so it's not a good design for a bridge, but the second more serious problem, I would suggest, has to do with the direction of movement. The direction of movement. That this illustration, it suggests that um, we want to get to God. We're trying to jump over the chasm. We're doing everything we can to try and get to God, but God doesn't want to be found. He's backing away. He's uh, unwilling to let us find him. But what we find in the gospel is it reverses this in the other direction. We find in the gospel is that we are actually running away from God. We are rebelling against God. We are seeking to live on our own autonomously from him. The root of sin is our desire for autonomy from God. And so the very root of the issue is that we're going the other direction. And yet in the gospel, what we find is that God has come to find us. We find in Jesus, and as he's about to go to the cross, he's going, I'm not giving you a mechanism so you're going to go out to find me. I'm coming to find you in the depths of your sin and your brokenness and your depravity and your suffering and your shame. The cross is the way that Jesus has come to find us. And Jesus says here, I am in the Father and the Father's in me. He keeps using that language. I, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. We're going to come make our home in you, and you'll be with us, and we'll all be one big happy family. You know, and as he keeps going in this passage, he uses this language that some have called like mutual indwelling. Father's in him, he's in the Father. And this is Trinitarian language that Jesus is not just some good teacher, he is God in the flesh. Come for us and our salvation. This means that if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus, right? Because there is not some other character of God elsewhere kind of hiding behind the curtain, like Jesus is the full revelation of the likeness and character of God. That if you want to know what God is like, what the creator of the universe is like, what the king of all creation is like, look at Jesus. And you find this revelation. And the beauty of the gospel is that you don't need to go out and find the king. The king has come and crossed the greatest chasm to come and find you. I love the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion. Familiar with C.S. Lewis, he is uh, one of the most prolific kind of Christian authors of the 20th century, wrote a lot of amazing books, uh, but he wasn't always a Christian. 
Uh, originally, he was an atheist. And one of the influential stories that was a big part of him coming to faith was this conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien. So Tolkien was author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and, and all those. And so he and Tolkien are both professors at Oxford and they're friends. And one night, he and Tolkien are taking this walk in Magdalen College in the gardens and yards at Oxford and they keep talking till 3 a.m. It's a good conversation. It's going late into the night, right? And Lewis is sharing his biggest objection with Tolkien. He's going, I just can't believe that this is, uh, that this one story is true and all the others are false. I can't believe that Christianity, the gospel, the story of Jesus, I can't believe that this one story is true and all the others are false. Because Lewis and Tolkien both studied uh, ancient stories like mythologies and fairy tales and traditions and things like that. That was like their, their expertise and specialty. And Tolkien kind of laughs and says, if I, Lewis, I think you're misunderstanding the way this works, right? He goes, there is a beauty. A lot of the, the stories and traditions and things of the world, uh, but they're, they're like projections from earth up onto heaven. But some of our deepest desires and longings and the things that we hope for and our deepest longings of the human heart are seen and expressed in a lot of these stories. It's like what makes the gospel unique, though, is that it moves in the other direction. It is the fairy tale come true. It is the story that moves from heaven to earth. And in doing so, it bears a unique relationship to the other stories and traditions of the world. Because as the story that comes from heaven to earth, it is the, the true story. And as such, it's like a magnet that draws out the best and the most beautiful, like the silver of the world's stories and traditions in these things. And yet it also judges and refines out and purifies the dross and the wickedness. Right? I believe this is why we are so moved by certain Stories, it may say some movies, books, themes in our culture. Take, for example, the common theme when we see the sacrifice of the dying hero who gives their life for their bride or their people, whatever. When I was growing up, this was, uh, man, all, all sorts of, there was like Titanic, Braveheart, Armageddon. And I remember a lot of us, you know, my friends and all, we used to think those movies were kind of cheesy from a distance. Then we'd be at the theater and we'd just be sobbing, dude, like tears. Oh, you know, the final moment where the hero lays down their life for their people and he's just sobbing. And we still see these epic themes today, more recently in A Quiet Place, Avengers Endgame, Jungle Cruise. Come on, I heard that for Endgame. There we go, yes. Marvel, unite, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. There is this power when we see the hero lay down their life for the other and for their people. And the reason that I believe our hearts are drawn to this is because it echoes the true story of the world. That the gospel is the fairy tale come true. It's the story that God has had planned from the beginning, foundation of creation. And so when we see aspects of our own movies and literature and things that, that reflect or echo those things, something hits the human heart and you just can't help but find yourself tearing up. Right? It moves us because it echoes the fairy tale come true. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is the fairy tale come true. He is the one who has made a way to come and find you. Jesus has come to find you. And there are some of you this morning who have given up on fairy tales, right? You're like, man, those things are for kids and I don't want to get suckered in. You've been let down by life too many times. 
Maybe there's been seasons that have felt more like a horror movie, you know, the enchanted drama. And yet, the beauty of the gospel is that the fairy tale is true, right? I almost hesitate to call it a fairy tale because we can think of it just like in our imagination. But what Lewis was saying is the difference in this one is that this one actually happened. That this is the story of the king who was crossed from heaven to earth. He has built the bridge and he has come to defeat the tyrant to wake us up from our slumber that we might be united with him as his bride and reign with him in his kingdom forever. The fairy tale is true. Now, there are some of you who have been living in some other stories. I think of Hollywood, there's, there's good stories. There's a lot of bad stories, too. And some of you have been living in some bad stories. There are some gnarly, ugly stories in our culture, stories like those that we could say the material story, the story that says, you're ultimately all alone. There's no God out there. You can't rely on other people. You can't trust. They're only going to let you down. They're only going to hurt you. And that's, that's, a, that's, that's a bad story to live in. Others of you are maybe living in the achievement story of our culture. It says you got to achieve this much to justify your existence. You got to impress this many people. You got to do something crazy enough to get noticed on TikTok so that you can get some sense of like, yes, you have validation, affirmation, right? And that can be exhausting if you're living in a story that says you got to achieve and do whatever to earn value. And the beauty, the gospel once more, is it moves in the other direction. It's saying you're not all alone in the universe. There is a God who sees you and knows you and knows your story, and he has crossed the greatest distance to come and find you. And you don't need to achieve or earn or justify your existence before you, before him. You have value because of his great love for you. And that's irrespective of how much you could ever do for him. Jesus is the way that has come to find you. Okay, well... <clears throat> This way is also unique. Jesus' way is unique. Uh, it's interesting here that Jesus is talking. We've got to remember, this is the night before his death. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? He's like, yeah, I'm going to the cross. That's where he's going. And the cross is a very unique way. Uh, when Jesus says he's, he is the way, he's on his way. He's going to the cross. And raises the question, well, why are you going to the cross? Chapter 14, verse 1, says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Essentially saying, hey, don't be afraid. Even though the cross is coming, don't be afraid. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. He goes on in verse 2 to say, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Not you got to go find me. I will come and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And <clears throat> this is powerful. Jesus says the reason he's going to the cross is to prepare a place for us in his father's house. Now, back in the day, back in the ancient world, uh, when a groom and a bride were getting married, one of the things a groom would do is they would go to their father's house and they would add an addition. They would build out a part of the home so they would prepare a place, prepare the way so that when they were united with their bride, they would come and live together in the father's house together. Uh, that's not really the case today often, right? We want to get out of mom and dad's house and especially, all right, I'm married, see you dad, you know, see you mom. Uh, but back in the day, there was more extended family. And so there's this picture of going, hey, the groom is going to prepare a place 
getting ready for the wedding day and so that when they're united with their bride, they can make their home together in the father's home. And scholars would say this is the imagery that Jesus is drawing on here when he's saying, the reason I'm going to the cross is actually to prepare a place for you so that you and I, the groom and bride, will be united, Christ and his church, and we'll be able to make our home with Christ in the family of God, his father, forever. So the cross is how Jesus makes a way for us to be home with the Father and the family of God. And the cross is unique. It is a unique way for this to happen. I've really been impacted over the years by Martin Luther, the famous reformer, his theology of the cross. Some would argue that this was actually the heart, at the heart of the Reformation. The Reformation was, uh, for Luther, this theology of the cross, where he contrasted these two ways, what he called the way of glory versus the way of the cross. So these is two different ways of trying to approach God and the ways that stood in contradiction to each other. And so first, he talked about what we call the way of glory, right? The theology of glory. And think of it something like this, right? Like you go out into creation. Let's say you go on a hike, you're up in the mountains, and you look out at the, uh, the wonder of the mountains and the trees and the forest. And you think, this is so big. This is so beautiful. I can only imagine the one who made this must be so all-powerful. And when you think that, you say, man, this God must be glorious and powerful, and so I want to try and approach him and encounter him in, in his glory. And so we try and clean up our behavior and perform and do the things that would impress him so we can gain his approval. And we approach God through our works because we're trying to encounter him in his glory on this way that we establish getting up to God. Now, the problem, Luther said, is that God has hidden himself from being found there. That God actually refuses to be found there because he knows it would only fuel our pride and the corruption of our condition and our desire for control. Because beneath all this, what's really at play is that we actually want to be like God rather than with God and under God. And this is one more part of our desire to stand before God on our own two feet. And so what God brilliantly does is he hides himself and refuses to be found there in order, Luther says, to reveal himself through its opposites. And this brings us to the cross where God has most intimately and profoundly and powerfully revealed himself in the opposites of what we would expect on the way of glory. But instead, God has revealed himself in weakness and suffering and shame. But the God of the cross reveals himself most powerfully through his own abandonment and rejection and death. That God has what Paul calls the foolishness of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1, that God has, uh, through the foolishness of the cross, <clears throat> he said he has made foolish the wisdom of the world. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has taken a unique and a different way than we would expect. Rather than us approaching him through the way of glory, God approaches us through the way of the cross, and he encounters us in the places that we don't want to see. He encounters us in our weakness and our sin and our suffering and our shame. And this means that the cross is unique. There is no other way like it. If people were to ask you, what makes Christianity different from every other religion out there? What you can tell them is, that's easy. It's grace, right? That every other religion and ideology is trying to show us how to go out into the universe and find God or meaning or transcendence or whatever. But what we find in the gospels, it goes the other way. It's God come to us. 
And here's the thing about the gospel is here is how far he goes. Jesus has not only gone from heaven to earth to find you. He has gone at the cross. He has gone from earth to hell and back to find you in the depths of your condition. One way I put it a while back in the pursuing God, I said it this way. I said, the cross is not a bridge we use to get to God. It is the flag of God's kingdom planted deep beneath the death-dealing soil of the cracked and barren earth we tread. It is the bridge through which God breaks into us. The resurrection is not a motivational talk to get our lives together. It is God's life-giving power breaking through the walls of our rebellion, spilling around the ramparts we've erected to receive all who will be embraced by his reconciling goodness, to restore all who will repentantly submit to his kingdom reign. And what the way of the cross means is that God is not looking for your trophies, but your scars. He has come not to encounter you based on your resume, but to find you in your rebellion. Jesus is not looking for you to impress him with your achievements. Rather, he's come to find you in your apathy and your avarice. He's not looking for how great you are. What's impressive is that he comes and reveals how great he is. The cross reveals is that our entrance into life with God is not based on how successful you've been, but rather on God encountering you in the depths of your sin to transform you from the inside out. The way of the cross is unique. And some of you are looking for God in his glory and calling it Christianity. Some of you are on like the Peloton of church, right? Where you've got some guides and instructors like, all right, God, I'm doing my Bible study and I'm doing some prayer and I've even joined an RC and God, look how great I am. And those are all good things. Uh, We do them here. I don't know. These are good things that are for our health and all, but why we do them is important, right? Like if you are doing these to try and earn God's love, that's like trying to build your own bridge out into the Atlantic. It's not, it's not going to get there. We do these things not for God's love, but from God's love. Because the way of the cross is unique, and it means that it starts with the God who has encountered us in our secret places, in our hard places, in the broken places, in the places we've messed up, in the places we've not had God figured out, in the places we've not done life right. That's the way that God has made us the cross. And the cross is not only unique, it's also decisive because Jesus has paid for it all. It's decisive because the finale, his work on the cross is, is all that's needed. He paid the perfect sacrifice, which means if you find yourself going, but man, Josh, you don't know how many bad things I've done or how big my debt is or how gnarly the things even that go on in my heart are, don't minimize the radical grace of the cross it's bigger than anything you've got to bring. The cross is a unique way that God has made to meet you wherever you might be at, and it is a decisive way because Jesus has paid it all. Okay, well, the third final observation here is that the way is Jesus. 
that the way that God has come to find you is Jesus. In verse five, Thomas again, he asks him, well, Jesus, how do we know the way? How can we get there? How, how do we know where you're going? How do we know the way? In verse six, Jesus said to him, here's the famous verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love this, how it says the way is not a concept, but a person, right? The way is Jesus because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way because he is God in the flesh. He is the one who has come to find you. This means that the core issue we have to face, it's not which box did you check on the which religion are you questionnaire. Rather, it's how do you stand in relation to the person of Jesus? I love in Matthew 7 where Jesus says on that day at kind of the coming of his kingdom, there will be those who uh, will say, man, Jesus, didn't we do all these like signs and wonders and they're like the super Christians doing like amazing things in your name. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. But then later in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about welcoming his sheep into the kingdom and the sheep are kind of going, but Jesus, when did we see you? When did we do those things for you? When did we know you? And Jesus essentially says, I've known you all along. And what's interesting here, what seems less important is whether or not you claim to know Jesus. And what's more important is whether Jesus claims to know you. Whether Jesus claims to know you. And what do you mean by that, Josh? Well, I mean, that word know can actually mean two different things, right? Like, think about it this way. If you think of, um, if you go to a scientist and a kindergartner and you ask them, hey, do you know how to ride a bike? And the scientist is like, yeah, I know how to ride a bike. It's, you, you got the pedals, and you put your feet on the pedals, and they're attached to these bars that rotate the thing, and there's gyroscopic motion, and da, da, I don't know, directional centrifugal force. I don't know, words I don't know how to say, right? right? And he's like, yeah, I know how to ride a bike. But you could ask him, well, have you ever ridden a bike? Like, no. You know? And then you ask the kindergartner, do you know how to ride a bike? And they're like, yeah, and they hop on, and wee, you know, and they're, they're off to the races. And so one is an intellectual knowledge, which is good, but insufficient. The other is an experiential knowledge. It's relational. Like, yeah, I actually know. And what Jesus is talking about here is that experiential relational knowledge of us knowing Christ and him knowing us. And what does it mean to know Jesus and to be known, even more importantly, to be known by Jesus? I believe it's a willingness to lay vulnerable all of our lives before him. Let him into the cracks and the crevices and the parts that we don't want him to see. Where are the areas in this morning where you need to be vulnerable with Jesus? The secrets in your heart, in your thoughts that you've been hiding, the things that have felt too dark to bring before him. The beauty is, man, he's come to actually flood those places with his light. Jesus has come to know you in those places and to transform you in those places. He is the way that has not only come from heaven to earth, not only come from earth to hell and back, but he's the way that has come for your heart. And this brings us back to that image that I opened with. We can bring back up that image of the bridge. And and again, this is a metaphor for the gospel reality that God has built in Jesus this bridge from heaven to earth. See, the problem with that other bridge analogy I used earlier, the problem isn't that it's not a bridge. Jesus is 
the bridge. Right. It's the bridge. The problem is not with the bridge, it's with the direction of movement. It's not about us going to get God, but we find in the gospel is that it's God who's come to find us. And as I shared, you know, like the longest bridge in the world costs $10 billion to build. But the bridge that God has built in Christ costs even more. It costs Jesus' life that he laid down for me. And this bridge is longer than the 102 miles, the longest bridge in the world. This bridge actually has come from heaven to earth for God to make a way into our post-apocalyptic wasteland, right? And how crazy is it, though, that this magnitude of this bridge from heaven to earth and across the tree, like that king, Jesus is the king leading the caravan with all of the resources, food for the hungry and medicine for the sick and water for the thirsty and uh, people to visit those who are isolated and lonely. He's come to bring this and he's crossed from heaven to earth, all of his heavenly hosts and armies behind him. But then when he gets to the final place, how ironic is it that there's a barricade and that we would be saying, no, we would rather build our own bridges, right? And I believe that God is calling some of you this morning to stop building your own bridge. Because the reality is, uh, man, we can come to church on Sunday, whatever. We can be living in some other stories. We're trying to make our own way out into the water. And there are other ideologies. There are other ways of approaching the world that ultimately, some of them can get you out of ways, but they're ultimately going to drop off into the ocean. They can't, there's, there's no other way out there that's gonna, there's no way out there that's gonna get you from earth to heaven. It's gonna get you to the fullness of God and transcendence and meaning. Some of the bridges that, that you might be on are, are built on a shoddy foundation. And man, we're gonna see people we know over the years who are like walking out and they crumble and it can tear their life apart. And some, as I mentioned, like, man, you're like, I don't want to join anyone else's building project, so I'm going to do my own. But all you got is like vines and rope. You're only going to be able to get like 10 feet out, right? Like, there's no way that you can get out there. And you can imagine some people going, well, it's so arrogant for the king to think that his one bridge is the only bridge, it's the only way. But it's actually not arrogant. It's beautiful. When you see that what's going on in this bridge is this is the way that the king has come to rescue you to heal you, save you, to make you whole, to bring his kingdom and his life and his flourishing into your life and into the land. And so I think there are some this morning who may need to turn from the other bridges you've been building to receive the king. And perhaps there are others who, others of you who have felt resigned to just kind of go, man, I don't think the bridge building game works. The reality is, maybe I'll go to church, I'll, I'll kind of you know, stuff, but the reality is we're on our own out here in the universe. Like this is, well, the fairy tale isn't true. There's no kingdom out there. There's no great king. And what I want to tell you this morning is don't let the gnarly stories of our world that have let you down keep you from the one true story of the king who's actually come. He has built the bridge and he is here with us and his presence is here for us. He is good and he is present, he is here for you. And so finally, I think the invitation for some of us is gonna to be to remove the barricade, to pull the bricks and the walls apart because how tragic would it be that the king builds this bridge from you know the hundred, heaven, heaven to earth, like the greatest cost ever. It goes all the way from heaven to earth to hell and back 
And then it gets to your front door and you're unwilling to receive a king who's come for you. The invitation is to remove the blockade and to receive the king. To know Jesus and even more so to be known by him because he is the way that God has come for you. The invitation this morning as we come to the table, uh, we come to the bread, a sign of Christ's body broken, and the wine, a sign of his blood shed. This is how Jesus has made the way to come to us. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. And as we come to the tables, we come to the way. This morning, you know, I was thinking of, um, there were stories I was reading about some of these bridges. And uh, there's one, the Monchock Swamp Bridge in uh, Louisiana. And there were all these stories about how to build this bridge over the water. There were all these monsters underneath. There were, there were mythologies or stories of like the, the swamp monsters and the various things. And they said they had to go down and, and put pile, drive deep down beneath the ocean, beneath the turbulent waters to go down and build the foundations so the bridge could stand. I think it's a powerful picture of what Christ has done on the cross. So we come to the bread and wine. We come to Christ who entered into the depths. He went down under the ocean, so to speak, beneath the turbulent waters. He allowed himself to be piledrived down deep and to defeat the monsters and the chaos and the stuff that lurked down there in order to establish a solid foundation that we can encounter God with us as his people. So the beauty of exclusivity that we are invited to today is that Jesus is not the one and only way that you have to go out into the universe to go find God. Jesus is the unique and decisive way that God has come to find you. You can come to Jesus this morning because he's the way that the Father has come to you. Just join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you have come for us, God, the beauty and power that you have made the way, God. You are the way, Jesus. <clears throat> this morning, Lord, we want to, if there are any here who have been building our own bridges, God, we want to stop trying to build our own bridges to, to get to you or to create meaning or life or existence on our own. God, we want to receive you, Jesus, who've come for us. God, I pray that your way, that you've made the way from heaven to earth to hell and back. God, I want to pray that you would make your way into the depths of our hearts. And so I want to take a moment, and would you just reflect as, as we're praying here, if there is any way, um, any area that you've kind of kept secret or protected or guarded against Jesus that you need to make vulnerable to before him this morning, that he would know you in that place. I'm going to create a moment for just silence that you would listen and reflect and invite you to bring that before him. You can kind of pray quietly, bring that before him. We'll invite you to do that now. Maybe some of you this morning, there may, there may be some people here this morning where maybe uh, you've kind of been checking out Jesus. You've been here kind of scoping out what is this Christianity thing about? And uh, God might be inviting you to stop building your own bridges. The other ways that you've been trying to find meaning, find life, find significance, find transcendence. And if that's you and you want to receive the King this morning, you want to receive Christ who's come for you. 
want to invite you to just pray with me. I'm going to pray, and you can quietly there just repeat this after me. But Jesus, I thank you. You have come and made the way to me. I thank you, Jesus, you've gone all the way to the cross and taken the fullness of my sin. Jesus, I receive you into my heart, into all the cracked and barren and vulnerable places. Jesus, I give my life to you that you might transform me inside and out by your grace. But to following you, Jesus, and experiencing life with you, you've come from you. If that was you, I would encourage you to come and talk to me, one of the pastors, any of us after this, we'd love to meet with you, give you a Bible, talk to you more. But now for all of us here this morning to Jesus, we come to you and we rejoice because you, you've made the way to us and you are the unique and decisive way, Jesus. And we thank you that you, have, you are transforming our lives from the inside out. So we give you praise, we give you all honor, we give you all glory, and we receive you, Christ, as our mighty King. It's in your name, Jesus, and for your glory that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you as we coming out to worship. If you need someone to pray with, there are going to be people at the sides who would love to pray with you. I encourage you to take advantage of that. Let's worship Christ, our King. Let's give all of our praise to Him because He's come so far.